Whatever you choose to do, you need to be really good at it. So then people will look at your accomplishments and say, boy, you know, she did a really good job being a surgeon. She's great with patients. She's great with teams. And as surgeons, we want teams all the time, whether it's in the operating room or in the clinic or in the emergency department, we're always running teams. So for me, I just focused on being a really good vascular surgeon. Welcome to season two of the Inspire podcast presented by Atrium Health. This is a podcast series for Panthers fans where we highlight admirable women from across the Carolinas as they share stories and lessons from their lives and careers. And today's guest, oh my goodness, she is quite the inspiration. Julie Freischlag, who is the CEO of Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist, the Dean of the Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and the Chief Academic Officer of Atrium Health Enterprises. Just to name a few things, Julie, thank you so much for being here. And I think my question and everyone's question who is listening, first and foremost, is when do you sleep? (laughs) Night. No, I need seven and a half hours of sleep. I go to bed about 10 and I get up at 5.30 and then go off to exercise, usually do a little elliptical and then off to work. So it works well. That is great to know. And I am so impressed that you have time to to exercise in addition to all of the roles that you have. So in addition to, to all of the incredible titles that I just listed, you're a vascular surgeon, you're a mom. This year, you are the president of the American College of Surgeons. What does it, I, I would just love to simplify this for people like me that hear your resume and go, oh my gosh, how can one person do all that? What does a normal day look like for you juggling all those things? Well, now that I'm, I'm more of an administrator, more than a surgeon, I do still operate. I'm an expert in thoracic outlet syndrome. So I take care of patients who have uh, injured either their artery, vein, or nerve due to their first ribs. So I operate uh, probably three to four times a month. And I see patients in the office a couple times a month. So that's less than I used to when I was chair of surgery or head of a vascular division. But starting off my day, usually about 7.30 now because of COVID, some is virtual, some is in person. I just did a video here for encouraging people to come back to work now that COVID's much less so that we can interact with each other. Uh, I meet with my department chairs. I meet with students. Uh, I talk with my teams about how we're going to promote research as well as clinical care. So it's very, that's why I love having all those titles because I get to do lots of things. I get to talk about research. I get to talk about clinical work and also talk about education. And and today I'm actually over at the medical school. That's where I'm spending my time today. Sometimes I spend my time over at the hospital and sometimes I'm down in Charlotte, too, because, as you know, we're going to be uh, putting a second medical school campus in Charlotte. So I have an office down in the atrium of uh, CMC Hospital of Atrium Health. And I definitely want to ask you about that a little bit later because that is so exciting. But how do you prioritize where you'll be and what gets your attention on any given day? I try to be really organized. So I think if you're a busy person, uh, and maybe women are really great at this, especially women that raise families as well, as you get really organized. So half my time, it's really program routine meetings and things so that you have an opportunity to meet with people consistently. So there's no urgent, emergent meeting to do that. And then things come up where you have to answer a patient like I did this morning. She was afraid she may have had a blood clot in her legs. So I answered her to talk to her. I mentioned one of my family members needed 
get a referral for a physician. So there are things that come up during the day that you have to do. Uh, and then other things are just uh, routine to, to take care of business as you go forward. We have a lot of group meetings too, where I bring my team together so uh, they can go off to do things. And probably one of the most important things is learn how to delegate most mm. everything. If you have a great team, off they go. Uh, like I talked to my research dean this morning and she's got everything under control for a, a retreat we're having actually down at the Sanger Heart Institute in July. And she's got that. So I don't need to get involved. I just need to know how to help. I love that. I loved what you said, just kind of very humbly about being somewhat organized. I don't think you, I mean, you have to be organized with all that you have going on. It really is incredible and great advice for everyone. I'd also love to ask you about your background. Sure. What interested you in in medicine? What was your path? And what have been all the stops along the way to get to where you are now? Well, I was born in a small town, so I was born in Decatur, Illinois. Um, My great-grandfather was a stone cutter. That's where the name Freischlag comes from. And my grandfathers each were, one was a coal miner and one made boilers for the railroad. So I came from people that used their hands, not to be surgeons, but to do other things. Um, My mother was a school teacher. And so she actually really encouraged us to get educated. Um, I was born in Decatur, but grew up in Carbondale and Urbana. And I skipped first grade. I was... uh, I had a brother a year old ahead of me. I read all his books. I was sort of a discipline problem. So I skipped a grade, uh, was headed towards college and thought I was going to be a teacher also. But at that time, they sort of closed education. They thought there were going to be too many teachers. I love science. So I was a STEM person before we knew it was STEM, right, to do it. And, and I applied to medical school mainly because um, to go into nursing school, you had to leave college a year early. And I love going to the University of Illinois. So I ended up going to medical school uh, sort of by default. I, I interviewed with a histologist, a woman who we really got along well. She asked me about the last book I read. It was Watership Down. She had read it and I was in the next day. And it turned out that the dean of the school at that time, the admissions, Norma Wagner, was really looking for more women to get into med school. In those years, uh, late 70s, about 10% women. My class was 42% women. So I was lucky to get in there. And then I did surgery as my first rotation and I just loved it. I had no idea that's what I wanted to be. Uh, So I ended up applying to surgery and training at UCLA. And I was uh, just the sixth woman to finish training at UCLA at that time. So it was new back in the 80s. Women in surgery weren't as prevalent as they are now. Uh, But at that time, it was just a great experience. And my mentor was a vascular surgeon, so I wanted to be just like him. And then after that, what was the path? Yeah, I took my first job actually down in San Diego. Uh, I was married once before. I've been married twice. My first husband was a physician too, and he had a fellowship there. So I did like many women where you sort of follow your partner and and try to coordinate schedules. And then we came back to Los Angeles where I worked at VA hospitals a lot because vascular surgeons do a lot of work at VA hospitals because of the nature of most of the patients being men uh, with the risk factors of smoking and diabetes. And so I went to um, back to UCLA to do that. And then then we got divorced and then I got an opportunity to go to Milwaukee to run the VA there as well as to be the number two person in charge of vascular surgery. So I did that. And then another opportunity came back to run UCLA vascular surgery 10 years later. So I did that. So I did a lot of moving. 
in order to um, get ahead at that time. I met my present husband in Milwaukee through a dating service. So we've been married now 29 years. Congratulations. Uh, so he went off with me to UCLA. And then I got an opportunity to be a chair of surgery, again, looking at leadership opportunities. And I was chair of surgery at Johns Hopkins for 11 years uh, before I became a dean at UC Davis and before I came to Wake Forest five years ago. So part of it is I've always looked for leadership opportunities, you know, where you can make a difference. Who do you work for it makes a big difference of who my boss is and, and also what are you learning you know as you take these positions you can stay there a long time if you continue to learn and make a difference for me i always needed something new i like to build and create things so i changed jobs quite a bit when did you know that leadership was something that you wanted to start looking for because as you said it sounds like that was always a part of your process but it's not necessarily the most common jump for a surgeon Correct. Well, part of it is the first thing you want to do is whatever you choose to do, you need to be really good at it. So the first thing I did is the first 10 years I was a surgeon is you want to be a really good surgeon or you want to be a really good broadcaster or you want to be a really good writer. Whatever you decide to do, you want to be really good at that. So then people will uh, look at your accomplishments and say, boy, you know, she did a really good job being a surgeon. She's great with patients. She's great with teams. And as surgeons, we won teams all the time, whether it's in the operating room or in the clinic or in the emergency department, we're always running teams. So for me, I just focused on being a really good vascular surgeon. And I must admit, as I kept coming through the ranks, there were very few women. There was only one woman in on faculty at, at University of California, San Diego, only one in LA when I was a surgeon, only two in Milwaukee. Mm. And I looked at how people led and how they made things work for groups. And I didn't like it as much. I thought we could be much more flexible. I thought we could actually do uh, better things um, uh, for the team. I thought we could be more inclusive. And so as I looked at things, I wanted to make those decisions. So if you're in a group and you don't quite like the decisions and and you can't quite get what you want, you can influence uh, being part of a team, but you can't change things. Mm. Uh, so the only way to change things is really to lead. And then you can make it, uh, in your own light. Uh, I do listen well. I'm a great listener and I do incorporate things well, but I think I sort of decided I wanted to change how things were uh, orchestrated and therefore I got into the leadership. And you talked about all the different places you've lived. I have lived all over the country as well, chasing my next opportunity. Um, and L.A., I've lived in L.A. I've not lived in Milwaukee, but Chicago. I grew up in North Carolina. And I will say L.A. is very different than Milwaukee, yeah. which is very different than North Carolina. And so when those opportunities presented themselves, you're picking up your, your whole life and moving into a totally different community. What were those decisions like? Was it always like I'm going for the next best opportunity, the next best place for advancement where my work is recognized? Um, and was it hard to, to live in so many different places over the course? of your career. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was younger, we moved a lot. And yeah. So maybe I got that from an environmental piece. My dad was circulation manager of newspapers. So he was a circulation manager of, of a newspaper in Decatur, Illinois, and then Carbondale, Illinois, and then Urbana. And then he was circulation manager for the Chicago Tribune. So I lived in Chicago too. So I went to three grade schools and three high schools. Wow. So I remember when I went to my third high school, um, I used to be sort of an introvert and I decided you needed to quit doing that. So maybe it was moving as a kid that we moved a lot. And so the longest I've ever lived anywhere uh, really was at Hopkins for 11 years and seven years when I got trained because we moved a lot. I love meeting people. Um, there's great um, things about every one of those 
towns. You know, LA was exciting back then as a young person to be in Los Angeles, to be training, to be by the ocean and to do those things. Uh, Milwaukee has uh, its special piece with being on the lake, but a little bit of winter to make that happen. Just a little bit. uh, (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. They had a record snowfall the first year I moved there, but I didn't take that personally. Same year in Winston, they had a record snowfall my second year. And and, and Baltimore was great too. I I think there's great people everywhere. And if I were to tell you, and you've probably seen this too, Kristen, is now you really appreciate people from all over, that people from California, people from uh, Illinois, whether it's Wisconsin, North Carolina, most people come to work or do live their lives to do the right thing and to be kind and, and gentle. Most people don't come to work to create endless trouble or not to be good at what they do. So meeting different ways of doing, especially in medicine, the way medicine is practiced is different in each region and state and area. So I actually think I got more a global look at how to take care of patients with different social economic issues, different living issues, different heritage, uh, different ethnic backgrounds. I think all of that together makes you a better physician, a a better leader, uh, a better anything, if you know how people are different and how that actually is a special sauce and not something that's uh, uncomfortable. That is a a really great viewpoint. And I'm so happy that you shared that. I really like that way of looking at the world. Uh, You talked, you've alluded to this a few times of just the fact that throughout your different stages of your career, sometimes you were one of two women, you were the only woman, you've broken barriers um, yourself through through so many of the amazing things that you've done. Did you face obstacles specific to being um, a woman in medicine and surgery? Um, and how did you deal with them, if so? Yeah. But I think I did. I think back when I trained, you know, I was in that group that was every other night in hospital. It was a pyramidal program. So they would take in 15 and only keep six. So it was pretty competitive back then in the eighties. And and partly I wanted to be a surgeon so bad that you just worked really, really hard. I must admit uh, when I went to UCLA, they had just finished their first woman in surgery. And so I saw that Margie Fine had finished. And so I was like, whoa. So they actually have finished one woman. I found that the men were actually just uh, really helpful. I had two brothers, so I was used to being around guys with making that happen. But there certainly are people that didn't see uh, a woman or a person of color or someone with different background in those roles. Now, they may actually not say it out loud. It may be more microaggressions. It may be more of how they choose and pick. But I think I was really lucky that the leaders I chose actually really saw that I could lead and that I had good qualities. And oh, by the way, I was a woman versus, oh, she's a woman, is this going to work? I'm certainly there were people that didn't like me or didn't think I should be promoted or move forward. I I did look at one job to be a chair of surgery and the Dean said he couldn't hire the first woman as chair of surgery in his school because they didn't have a chair uh, that was a woman. And to me, um, and that was early 2000s, to me that actually is, excellent information because you don't want to work for someone who doesn't want that to happen. Uh, You wouldn't want to get there and find out they didn't want a woman leader where when I went to Hopkins, the the dean there, Ed Miller, was like, let's do it. I was the only woman chair there for 11 years, but he really knew that it needed to change surgery and was very supportive. So I think choosing who your boss is actually affords you ability to make a difference. And and for me, now I'm enjoying so much that so many more women are coming into surgery. You know, we've got about 20 or 30% of surgeons now are women, Uh, about over half our training programs are women, over half 
uh, uh, people in medical school are women now too. And now we just need to get women to the leadership positions to realize that actually you do have more control and ability to do what you want to do when you lead versus being part of the team. And, and not all women should lead, just like not all men should, but having those opportunities are, are really important. I guess when I saw someone who didn't wasn't that great or that nice. You know, I guess I was pretty good at speaking out and telling people about it. I, I actually probably was a bystander a person that could speak out way back then, maybe because I had the two brothers. And, and frankly, I would just take note of that and realize that, you know, you can't change everybody. You know, some people aren't going to like you for how you look or where you trained or what you do, but that you can go forward and do other things with other people and then turn back and bring others with you so that you're able to afford other people opportunities. And, and I think it's gotten better and better. Uh, there's more women training with men. So men are really used to women training with them. I know my son, when he was six, he asked me if women, if men could be surgeons too, because he thought only surgeons were women. You know, I that's love what he saw. that. Oh, yeah, That's what he saw in our house because my husband's a businessman. And I said, well, with your mother's help, you too can be a surgeon. Now he, he does real estate equity research, so he's not a surgeon, but I do think that, um, uh, as you go forward, you can make a difference uh, with some people. And some people, you're just not going to change your mind, so you just move on. And I, I love what you've said about being in leadership with the opportunity to give back and to help others along the way. So how do you uh, look at that part of it, whether it's women or people who you know may not have the opportunities? Um, how do you look at that part in all the jobs that you do? And I've always been very involved with students, uh, mainly came from my mother being a teacher. So when I've been in medical school or when I've been in residency or training, I always have a student shadowing me. So I'll have students come to the operating room so they can see that. I Students in the clinic, now I actually get a senior that just finished Wake Forest University that shadows me for a year, a presidential intern, and they can shadow me. They go to the OR, they go to my meetings, and all of them have ended up in medical school, which is great. So making sure that you get show people, afford them an opportunity to see, because I had no surgeons in my family, and then not only to mentor them and listen to them, but I think the biggest word now is sponsorship, right? So that if you want to go do something, I actually make sure you get that chance. And now that I've had tons of chances, people know me, I don't need to give one more talk or one more thing. I can actually say, well, why don't you interview so-and-so versus me? She's amazing. He's amazing. You can make that happen. So I think sponsorship and really telling people to to, um, get prepared for these leadership positions is really important. And I love having young people around. I think as I've gone through my career now, being a surgeon now for 35 years, it's great to have young people there so that they actually can give you a point of view from those coming up. Because what we're doing today in medicine is really for the next generation. So it makes sense that they should be at the table having a comment. You can just tell from just even a few minutes of talking to you just how much you give back it seems at the very ethos of what you do and I, I love the way you said well I get to have an intern shadow me non-stop you know your entire day <laughs> it seems just like every minute of every day for you is is about uh giving back to people and and in addition to all the work that you're doing how do you recharge your batteries in the rare times that you're not working 
Yeah. Well, I'm a very big extrovert, which you can tell I can when I tell. take that test. I'm, I'm an extrovert sort of over the cliff to do that. So I get energy from people. The COVID's been really hard for those of us that are extroverts, you know, doing virtual, not seeing people, uh, not being out and about has been tough. Just last week, I actually was at a couple meetings seeing people and it was it was really refreshing to make that happen. So people give me energy. They give me um, feedback that is good. I tend to love having meetings where there's strategy or creativity because you think of something amazing to do that. But for me, um, I do read a lot. So actually, I miss traveling because I used to travel to places and work on the way there. And if I got my work done, I would read a book because I still read books. I actually like books to do that. So I read a lot. Um, I, I exercise quite a bit, walk with my husband. I'm a swimmer too. I have a, um, an endless pool. So I'll do some swimming from time to time. And then I do crafting too. So I make things and I sew and I create things sort of like a surgeon at home. So I do have those activities where I always have some project going that uh, ends up with either gift for somebody or something that I created. So maybe that's the surgeon in me at home. Um, but I tell you, people really make give me tons of energy. Now, there are people that not everyone is energized positive, you know, as these <laughs> leadership positions, you do have to work with people that do cause a little trouble or they're all in the they're in the wrong spot. And I do feel everyone's got the right spot, just sometimes they're not in the right spot. So you have to move people along. So I'm pretty good at having those crucial conversations saying, you know, you're really amazing, but you're not amazing here. So let's <laughs> figure out where you can be amazing. That's a great way to put that. I really like that. You're amazing, but maybe just not right here. You talked about being an extrovert and and COVID being hard on, on you, a lot of extroverts. Also, hard on the place that you work, I imagine. You guys have come through it very admirably. So I'm just wondering, with all that Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist has overcome in the past few years and has achieved since you've been there, what are some of the moments that make you the most proud? Because you're doing such incredible work. Yeah, well, we changed quite a bit as far as before we came together with Atrium, which was in 2020, October 2020, we actually expanded even up here in Northwest uh, North Carolina. So we actually uh, bought High Point Hospital. We had bought Wilkes Hospital. So we're a, a five hospital group with about 140 clinics, about four and a half billion dollars. So we got bigger here even before we joined Atrium, which made us even two to three times that big. We also had something where we didn't deliver babies at our hospital. So it was a very interesting thing. Years ago, they decided to deliver the babies at another hospital and really just focus on trauma and cardiac care and things. And, and with that, we're self-insured. So my, my women who work for us actually deliver their babies at another hospital. And if the baby got sick, the baby would come to our hospital, but they would stay at the other hospital. So we opened a big maternity ward. So now we're delivering over 3,000 babies a year. We were only delivering 30 back then. So we developed a great big maternity ward. Luckily, we did it in 2019 before COVID. So that's been really wonderful where we have a very active neonatal ICU. We're delivering babies. All our people that work for us can deliver their babies there. So that probably has been just really exciting and also has expanded the families we take care of because it really has been shown wherever a woman has her baby or brings her child, she tends to bring all her health care to that area. So it's really important to do that. So expanding that has been really important, as well as expanding 
our, our medical school research. We've increased the amount of research over 50% uh, over the last five years, looking at uh, the etiology of Alzheimer's and, and aging, as well as diabetes. We have a big regenerative medicine uh, center here where we're looking to make kidneys and, and tumors, uh, tumor of, uh, chemotherapy so that we can actually know it works for well. That's Dr. Atalid that does that. So our research has expanded as well. So we're real excited about that. And probably the biggest thing is, you know, now with our partnership with Atrium Health, uh, putting a second campus in, in, in Charlotte, we get over 11,000 applications for our medical school every year, and we only have 145 spots here. So it makes sense that we could uh, have a second campus of 100 students down in Charlotte as well, because we have so many applications. And, and what's your role with that? Because it just sounds so exciting expanding into the, the Charlotte area. And I know you said you're down in Charlotte quite a bit. So what is your focus when it comes to that expansion? Yeah. Well, initially at the Dean is we've been looking at how to put the applications in. We have third and fourth year students down there now. And, and we have a new senior associate Dean for education, Angela Sharkey, who's putting the school together. She did that in Greenville, South Carolina as well. So we are uh, recruiting a Dean because I am finding myself a little busy with being the chief academic officer. Just a so little busy. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have a dean look at that, and then the chief academic officers. I oversee not only the medical school, but we have an excellent PA program here, as well as a CRNA program, and there's two colleges down in Charlotte, uh, Cabarrus and Carolinas, where they train techs and nurses and that, and so being over looking at not only the students, but the residents we train. We train almost 2,000 residents in different fields between the two campuses, so all that together, just watching over the education piece, and then we also think uh, we call ourselves an academic uh, learning health system because even if you're not a student uh, or a resident, you're still always learning no matter what you do. So making sure our, our physicians, our, our staff, our nurses continue to learn and make a difference to be the best they can be as a healthcare provider. Well, Julie, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your incredibly busy day to talk through all of this with me. And just thank you for all the work that you do in, in my home state and in this area and all the work you're going to be doing in Charlotte and everything you do at Wake Forest. I can't thank you enough just for all the contributions you're making and then also setting a great example for, for all of us. And I'm just honored to have a chance to talk to you and to hear about everything that you're working on. It's just been really incredible. Well, I appreciate that opportunity. We love North Carolina. I've been here five years. Wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, the, the culture down in Charlotte with the Atrium Health really matches ours really well. We're all to making people better. You're giving, making people better, preventing them from being sick and getting people access no matter who you are so you can get great health care. Uh, both Atrium in Charlotte as well as Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist. We take care of a lot of people who have issues with access, who don't have insurance, that have all these other things as well as doing um, life-saving and amazing uh, breaking news type things as well. So all together, we just feel fortunate to be here. And thank you for asking me to talk. Yes. And we feel fortunate that we are the recipient of, of all you and everyone under you are doing. So thank you so much. We appreciate the time. You're welcome.